And welcome to the Practice as Research Network seminar series. Um, it's really exciting to have everybody here. Um, it's been quite a few months since we've had the last of this instalment over the summer break. And then obviously COVID-related um, illness, we had to, to postpone one of our talks as well. But um, hopefully um, we are back um, into the swing of things now and we can do them regularly again. Um, I must say that I have quite missed them, so I'm really, really excited to have them back. And it's really even more exciting for me. Um, today, we have somebody here who is our guest presenter and who's actually from my own um, department at work. So this is, you know, doubly exciting because it's always nice to hear other people talk from different disciplines. But, um, you know, when you actually realize that actually you've got some really interesting stuff going on in, in the very place where you work and you don't usually get time to talk to people's research, this is a nice way of actually catching up with people and friends. So I do enjoy that as well. <laughs> so today we have got with us Dr. Ana Belizea Sanchez, um, who's going to be talking about um, what it means to, to be ethical when you're researching cognitive processes in language learning. Um, and specifically, she's going to be talking about eye tracking. Um, and I'm quite excited about that because I'm very conscious when I'm sitting in front of the camera like this, that I'm looking into the camera and not my screen. Um, so, you know, the eye tracking thing is kind of at the back of my mind as well. So that's, that's <laughs> something that's really exciting. Um, to kind of introduce Anna um, very briefly, um, Dr. Anna Belicia Sanchez is um, Associate Professor of, of Applied Linguistics and TESOL at the Institute of Education, UCL's Faculty of Education and Society in the UK. Her research focuses on the teaching and learning of vocabulary in a second or foreign language. Um, and her recent research has used eye tracking to examine the cognitive processes involved in vocabulary learning, with a particular focus on learning from reading. Um, Anna is a co-author of An Introduction to Eye Tracking, a Guide for Applied Linguistics Research, and co-editor of Understanding Formulaic Language, um, published in Routledge. So without any further ado, I'm going to hand over to Anna. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to stop sharing my screen first of all, and then Anna, um, if you could just you know do your presentation first, I will keep my video on so that you can see me, so you're not talking to an. Yeah, editor. no worries. Let but me. But I will mute myself so there is no um, you know it's not no, no echoing or anything. Um, so when when I'm when you're talking, I'm going to mute myself. And then after that, um, we're going to sort of have a little bit of a discussion. And I always take this opportunity to kind of ask questions first. It is my prerogative as the person hosting it. So yeah. I'm always getting the first question, which is really nice. Uh -huh. um, but everybody else in the room, please do feel free to raise your hand, virtual or real, to unmute yourself later. Um, but also to raise any questions that you may have in the chat box, which I will keep an eye on as well. So please, Anna, if you would like to share your screen. Yes. Uh, let me see if it, it worked before, so let's hope it does work here. Uh, can you see the slides? Just yes, the slides. Yes. Perfect. Yes. Excellent. Okay, so I'll get it started. Well, thank you. First of all, thank you very much, uh, Nicole, for the invitation. It really is a, a pleasure for me. Also, uh, it's always a good opportunity to talk about our research and what we do, but this has a slightly different focus and is a slightly different uh, audience, so it's always good because uh, I'm sure I'll... I'll 
you know, will be an interesting uh, discussion. And I will learn from these as well. So it's quite, uh, yeah, it's quite exciting for me to be to be here today. As Nicole was saying, uh, what I will do is um, I'm going to be talking about how we use eye tracking to explore cognitive processes in language learning and related ethical uh, considerations. So um, what I thought I would do, I'm not sure how uh, familiar everybody uh, is with eye tracking. So I would provide a very brief overview of what it is, uh, what, what the technique involves, and also um, um, provide a brief overview of some of the key applications in language learning, those things that I've been working on for the last uh, few years, uh, focusing on vocabulary learning, one of the topics that I've explored using um, eye tracking. And then at the end, I've listed a few of the main ethical considerations that arise from this research. I'm sure that you can think of more. So, <laughs> so we'll leave that for the discussion. But I've, uh, yeah, I've included some of those main ethical considerations that arise from this type of research. So, uh, Eye tracking is basically, uh, uh, for those of you who are not familiar with these, is basically a device that we use to measure learners or participants' eye movements while they're processing any sort of a stimuli on a computer screen. So it could be a text, it could be an image, it could be a, um, a movie. So anything that we display on a computer screen, then with this, with the eye tracker device, we measure participants' eye movements while they're processing these different types of stimuli. There are many different types of um, equipments and different types of systems that we could use. And I'll talk about that at the end, because of course, considerations are different depending on the one uh, that you are using. Um, so it provides a, a, a very rich record of processing behavior. So where participant participants and learners in, in my case are actually looking at and for how long. So from the very early days, it was considered as an opportunity to look into the mind of the subject. And this is key why we are, uh, we've started to use it in language learning research as well. So as I was saying, it measures eye movements. <clears throat> and in particular, it measures three different types of uh, eye movements. Saccades, which are the very fast movements of the eye. So when we move from one point to another, when we're reading a text, or when we're, uh, you know, looking at a picture or watching a movie. Uh, so the movements, the rapid movements of the eye would be uh, called saccades. Fixations are basically the stops, the times where we stop and fixate on a particular part of the text or uh, image or whatever uh, the stimulus uh, is. And regressions, this is particularly for reading. Uh, these are movements back in a text. So we are reading and then we move back to reread other parts of the text. And I'll show an example so that it's uh, clear. So imagine that this is a sentence that we are presenting uh, people uh, with and, and we want to know how they are processing these types of uh, th this uh, particular sentence. So the grace, uh, uh, circles here uh, on the screen are basically fixations. So number one to six are the stops, the points where uh, our eyes stop to process information. And these are the points where um, information is actually processed. There is not that much information processed during saccades. So it's mainly those fixations that those are stops of our eyes where we process information. So the arrows A uh, to E would be um, the uh, saccades. And then uh, at the end, we have an example of a regression. So we would start reading this sentence, the woman saw the man with binoculars, and then we go back again and we read man 
uh, and uh, the end of binoculars again. So these movements back would be regressions. But I won't go too much into the tech, you know, the details of the measures and all that, just for us to have an idea of what types of eye movements we measure with these um, equipment. So the important thing is the assumptions behind these. So one of the main assumptions uh, bef uh, behind the, the, the study of eye movements is that the, the amount of time that we spend fixating an item, um, stopping uh, to process a particular item, when I say item, it could be, you know, word or a part of an image or, or dynamic uh, image, it reflects the cognitive effort required to process it. And that what we are fixating is what is being considered. So when we fixate on a particular word or part of, uh, of a visual display, that uh, uh, reflects the cognitive effort that is involved in processing and that this is actually what we are considering, right? So <clears throat> it has many advantages. It can be done without a secondary task. And this is important for, uh, you know, experiments that actually explore uh, things like, uh, you know, processing time and reading, uh, because you don't need to ask participants to do anything other than just sit back and read whatever we present on the screen or watch this movie. They don't necessarily need to press a button or do, uh, you know, really record any sort of measure um, any sort of response as as, as other te techniques would uh, require. It, as I was saying earlier, it provides a very rich record of processing behavior. So we can know exactly where participants are looking at and for how long. Um, so eye tracking data is normally reported in terms of number of fixations, the number of how many times people stopped in that particular area that you're interested in and the duration of those, those fixations. So for how long? Um, and whether that particular area was fixated or was skipped. Um, and data is often also reported in terms of early and late measures. There are loads of different eye tracking measures that I'm not going to get into, but just some of those reflect more automatic processing and others more control strategic processing. So that just for, 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 for us to know. <clears throat> so there are challenges when we, so in the last... So eye tracking was obviously very much used. It was a common technique in cognitive psychology and, and, and psycholinguistics for decades. It's been really in the last 10 years or so that it's it's really uh, been started to be used in, in language learning and second language acquisition research. And there has been a huge increase in the number of studies using it because obviously of the benefits and how useful it is to explore uh, underlying cognitive processes. There are important challenges as well that we need to consider. Um, so especially when we use this te technique as I've done, as we are doing in, in, in the field to explore language learning processes, we have to be careful about how representative it is of real learning situations. I mean, remember that in the majority of cases, we are, uh, um, I mean, data is collected in a lab, in an eye tracking lab with the students one by one. Uh, I mean, it's very difficult to mimic real classroom uh, and real language learning situations. I mean, there are very few exceptions around the world of, uh, you know, labs where they have I don't know, 10 or 15 different uh, equipments, but they're very expensive. So that's very rare. So in the majority of cases, we have one or two uh, eye trackers in a lab. So that's something to, to consider. Um, it's important to consider as well that in this, case of, in this kind of more applied language learning contexts, 
Um, eye tracking and, and this, the, the, the examination of eye movements cannot really tell us everything about cognitive processing. So we'll be able to say, okay, learners spent these amount of time on this item in comparison to these other. They, they seem to pay more attention to this part or the other, but we very often it's not possible to know why exactly they were spending you know more attention on a particular part of the stimulus so that's something to um to consider and very importantly eye movements are very precise uh, measurements and they're affected by many many different factors so the actual appropriate design of eye tracking studies is key and it really the design is related to how you know the the, the claims that we can actually make uh, based on the data so I'll show an example so that you 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 see what i mean so this is uh, um, an image from, uh, from an ad. Um, this is a heat map. So it's just a visual representation of eye movements. The red areas are basically the areas that received most attention. So if we look at these, what can we say about the processing of this uh, advertisement? Well, we can say that this participants seem to spend more time reading the title, the first part of the text, and definitely the, the face of the baby. If we look at another representation where we see the, the order of the stops of the fixations, we could say that they first um, look at, um, at the text. Well, that's probably a landing fixation, but anyway, and then the baby, and then finally the title. But we can't really say um, much about the processing of specific words in the text, mainly because um, the text is too small for us to be able to make claims about that. So this is just to show how important the design of the materials and the stimuli is in this type of eye tracking um, experiment. So when possible, it's good to modify materials and, and, and create them ourselves to make sure that the data can answer our research questions. And if we use authentic materials, we will, there will be a, a range of variables that we will have to control for in the analysis, or you know that might just limit the, the, the claims that can be made. So I think this is really important when we're thinking about applications of eye tracking to different um, uh, areas. So as I was saying, it has received recently a, a huge amount of attention from language learning and second language acquisition researchers. It has been applied and used in many different topics. Um, I've particularly used it uh, to explore uh, the process of learning from written input, so learning from reading, uh, particularly focusing on vocabulary learning in the majority of studies. And also I've looked at uh, learning from multimodal exposure. So when people have access to you know, text, but also images, audio input, um, dynamic images, so how, how attention is actually split in those cases. But I'm just going to focus on learning from, uh, from reading today and show you a couple of examples of, of basically what we found from this uh, research. So focusing on uh, vocabulary learning from reading, um, when we talk about uh, the different learning approaches, uh, vocabulary learning approaches, we usually make this distinction between um, a more intentional learning and incidental learning approaches. So intentional learning, when there is a clear intention to learn vocabulary and a clear um, a focus on learning a set of words, like when learners complete vocabulary activities, there is a clear goal to learn vocabulary. And more incidental approaches are those uh, where the learning happens as a sort of uh, consequence of the, of, the, of the reading activity. 
uh, sorry, of the of the communicative activity. So the focus is on meaning, not necessarily on form. So um, when we talk about incidental learning, we're basically referring to learning from reading, reading while listening, listening or viewing. So there are lots of research showing that uh, just when learners read for pleasure or watch a movie or listen to a podcast, they also improve their vocabulary knowledge and they can learn new words from that, even if their focus is really just on the meaning uh, and the content of um, of whatever it is it that they're exposed to. So loads of research uh, has uh, provided evidence for these. I'm really focusing today on learning from reading. So the main myth, uh, kind of design of these studies, the traditional design of uh, uh, studies looking at vocabulary learning from reading is that where we have uh, you know, a pretest, a reading activity, and then a post-test. So in the pretest, we measure knowledge of a set of words that are going to appear later in a reading text. And then after the reading, we measure knowledge again to see how much they've learned. And this design has been great. And this kind of uh, um, research design has allowed us to, to really um, find out more about what learners get from reading, what they remember after the reading activity, what they can remember about those new words that they um, uh, were exposed to. But it doesn't really tell us much about what happens when learners are actually reading the text and they find words they don't know. I mean, we, we of course, hypothesize that, you know, in the majority of cases, uh, learners could skip the words or they could try to guess from context, but we really don't know. Uh, and eye tracking really provides a great means to actually find out what happens as they are reading the text. So this is certainly uh, um, something that has been uh, um, uh, explored in, in, in vocabulary learning research. In the first language context, so looking at first language reading, um, uh, studies have found in general, as we would expect, that when first language readers are reading a text and they find words they don't know, they would spend more time reading uh, those new words when compared to words that they know very well. And the reading times decrease with exposure. So that means the more times you see a novel word, the faster uh, your reading becomes. And that makes sense. That means you are, uh, you know, building your familiarity with that word and learning uh, that new word. In the second language context, and the, uh, as I was saying, the last eight years or so, there have been loads of studies uh, that have tried to, you know, use eye tracking to, to explore uh, vocabulary learning from reading. We found a similar pattern. So studies tend to show longer reading times for unknown vocabulary. So when L2 learners, second language learners are reading a text and they find words they don't know, they tend to spend more time processing. They, they spend more attention. Uh, they pay more attention, sorry, on those words that they don't know. Um, reading times decrease with more exposure. So the more time they read it, the um, the um, the faster the reading and more fluent the reading becomes. Uh, we found similar patterns for single words and also formulaic sequences like, like collocations, so items beyond uh, the single word. And um, also importantly for language learning researchers, some studies, not all, some studies have found a connection between the amount of attention that we pay, uh, that learners pay to words in reading and how well those words are learned. And that's key because that's one of the main uh, theories of, of, of uh, language learning, this idea of noticing, and I'll, I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. 
So, so far so good. And eye tracking has really allowed us to, to learn a lot about vocabulary learning. But um, we also know that uh, incidental vocabulary learning from reading and any other source really, really depends, as I was saying, on the involvement, uh, on the degree of involvement in processing. So the degree of attention. Learners need to pay attention to those words. Otherwise, they need to notice those novel words in the input. Otherwise, uh, chances are that they will not learn those words. And this is really related, as I was saying, to um, um, important theories in second language acquisition, like noticing hypothesis or depth of processing hypothesis. So an important question for uh, vocabulary researchers and SLA researchers has been to find ways to promote that and make sure that learners actually see and pay attention and notice those words that they don't, uh, that they don't know. So um, many different methods uh, have been uh, explored in the in the literature. One of them, uh, or one of those that has received the most attention, I think, <clears throat> is this idea of pre-modification of input. So um, things like um, bolding, underlining, as you have here, the example here with highlighting. So all these techniques uh, seem to support the noticing of the um, of those items and then leads to higher um, uh, gains. And we have studies both in vocabulary and grammar learning as well. And the couple of studies that have done this with eye tracking has also shown that all these techniques of bolding, underlining actually lead to more attention. So they're good attention drawing uh, devices. But one of these methods that I was really interested in, and I've done a few uh, studies on this area, <clears throat> this is what I wanted to, uh, to show to you uh, in a very brief uh, um, uh, format, um, is instructional intervention before reading. Those of you, I'm not sure whether uh, um, um, some of you are involved in, in, in language teaching, or well, you might have experience as, as language learners. This is a very, very common uh, um, um, activity in the language classroom where we teach a set of words before we actually find them in a text. So if we if there is a set of words that we find are going to be very difficult for learners, we teach them first that relevant vocabulary, and then we ask them to read a text containing those, um, those words. So the vocabulary is initially learned through that explicit intentional learning, and then it, it is consolidated uh, in, uh, in reading. So it supports uh, lexical inferencing from reading as well. That's what researchers have said. And there is some empirical evidence showing that it actually works for vocabulary learning, and it makes sense. That's what we would expect. But now there have been, researchers have said different things about the effect of this instructional intervention before reading uh, on, on the actual processing. So some uh, researchers have said that it might increase the salience of the words and make learners pay more attention. But also the researchers have said that it might discourage guessing a strategy. So since they already know what they mean, they might not pay that much attention to the words and that might affect the learning process. And this was something that I was really interested in and thought, well, eye tracking can help here. And we can really see whether teaching words before reading actually impacts how learners deal with those words while they're reading the text. And that's precisely uh, what I uh, did 
uh, together with uh, colleagues, uh, um, uh, Kathy Conkling and Laura Wilkeiter, in a couple of studies that we recently uh, conducted. Basically, we compared I'm not going to go into the details of the study, and you can ask later if you if you if you have questions. But basically, we compared uh, pre-reading instruction, so participants who actually receive teaching of a set of acti- of uh, vocabulary uh, items, so a set of words before reading them in 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 a text, with participants who only were only exposed to those words in a text. So they received no instruction whatsoever. And we had a control condition where they read a text with uh, real words uh, and familiar words that they knew very well. So this is, for example, one page of the text that they read. It contained some pseudo words, and we'll talk about that at the end. So they had to read a short uh, story with these uh, um, unfamiliar items repeated eight times throughout the story. And we recorded the eye movements in the different conditions that I mentioned. So after the reading, uh, we measured how much they had learned about the words. And then we also looked at the eye movement uh, data. And basically what we found was that in terms of vocabulary tests, pre-reading instruction led to the highest scores, and that's expected, right? They receive instruction and then they read the text. So in terms of the actual uh, vocabulary knowledge, it was the best group uh, compared to reading only. Now, in terms of eye movements, we have here a summary. Uh, Basically, what we find was that the very first time that learners saw those words, there was no difference whatsoever between the pre-reading instruction and the reading-only condition. So that means it didn't matter if they had been taught the items or not. They actually spent a very similar amount of attention, which was against what we expected. Um, And of course, way longer than the control items, so the words that they knew very well. And towards the end, what we find is an advantage of the pre-reading instruction. So there were no differences at the beginning, but once they had seen those words uh, eight times, the participants in the pre-reading instruction condition were actually able to read those new words in a very similar way to control items, so to words that they knew very well. So that means that the reading was much more uh, kind of fluent uh, when compared to reading only. So that points to an advantage of uh, pre-reading instruction for um, um, uh, for the processing of this new vocabulary. So it is really, um, with this, I just wanted to show the kind of things that eye tracking can 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 um, um, well allow researchers to actually uh, know about the process. In this particular case, the process of vocabulary learning from reading. So it's been great so far in really allowing us to see not only what happens after and you know what what kind of knowledge they remember from the words, but actually how that learning happens and the amount of effort, the amount of attention that is put into dealing with these unknown vocabulary, which we know is something that learners actually deal with a lot. So still a lot to do, but I think we've accumulated quite interesting evidence for the last uh, few years. Now, ethical considerations. The first one has to do with the equipment. 
So the first thing that we consider with this type of experiment is any potential you know, equipment-related risks. I've put different pictures here. The, the first two, where you actually had to wear something as a, a sort of weird helmet, this is the eye tracker that I used uh, when I started uh, uh, learning and, and using eye tracking. And that was no good at all in the sense that it was heavy and it was it got warm uh, um, uh, with time. So we had to be very careful about that. We had to be very clear about that in, in information uh, sheets for participants. We had to be clear, uh, very careful with the duration of the experiment because, of course, people couldn't be wearing that for four hours. Uh, I mean, it would have, have been ethical to ask them uh, to do that. So we had to be very careful about the duration of the experiment and be clear about that, uh, you know, in the information sheet. Another important thing is um, that usually, I mean, there with eye tracking, what happens is that we have a camera and infrared light that captures your pupil. And we have to be clear that there are no known uh, uh, risks for vision. Uh, but usually participants need to know uh, these. Now we are uh, we are lucky in that the systems that we use are much less uh, intrusive. So there you it depends on which system you use, but uh, at least the one that I use is head free. So you don't have to put anything in your head. Sometimes we ask people to put their chin in a chin rest or forehead uh, rest, so to control for movement. Uh, and again, this is something important because if we do that, we have to consider how long the experiment is for how long can people actually sit still without moving. So it tends to be relatively shorter experiments or with uh, breaks so that people can actually move. And um, we have to be very clear about that, that they can they can stop at any point and they can if they decide it's too much. Uh, they can they can leave basically, and uh, and what I tend to do as well is to include a practice session, a shorter practice session at the beginning, so that they get an idea of what it is and how still they need to be and and things like that. So that's the first um, kind of ethical consideration that uh, that I think you know we need to consider. Another issue related to the equipment is the. Um, the issue, and this is important for, for uh, participants' consent, is the um, the calibration. I won't get into that, but getting a good calibration of the equipment is key to get good quality data. So the first thing that we do in this type of experiments to set up the equipment is to do a calibration, usually a nine-point calibration, where you would see something like what you see in the screen, and you have to follow those dots. Is basically so that the equipment records the position of your eyes and can provide good data. Now, sometimes it doesn't work, and sometimes you try again and again, and it has to do with the size of the pupil of the participant or the contrast. It, it really, sometimes there are no explanations, but very often it happens, but not very often, but sometimes. And sometimes you cannot proceed with the experiment if you don't get good calibration and good validation. And an important question, I think, for us as researchers is what, what do we do if calibration doesn't work? Um, first of all, there are implications. Very often in these experiments, participants receive a compensation for their participation. What do you do then? Do you still uh, give them that compensation or you don't? 
Um, but then you have to be very clear about that in, you know, ethics applications and information sheet for participants. They need to know if for some reason it doesn't work, are they going to receive compensation or only part of it? Uh, I think we have to be super clear about the, 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 the likelihood that this might not work. Something that I also have dealt with is managing a student's disappointment. Sometimes they come and they really want to participate in this study and suddenly you tell them, oh no, it doesn't work, you can't do it. Um, so something that I've done in the past is to have plan B and have another, you know, maybe a paper version of some of the tasks so that they actually do something and they don't feel like they haven't done anything or just run the study if you can, even if you know the data is not going to be good at all. So these are important decisions that you have to make beforehand uh, and have a very clear protocol of what is it that you're going to do in cases where it doesn't work. Um, another important consideration has to do with particularly this topic, not with all eye tracking studies, but with this topic that I've talked about today, is the task instruction. So in, if we are exploring incidental learning conditions, participants cannot be aware of the specific aim, because if they know that this study is about vocabulary learning, uh, that the data is like you can just throw it away because uh, basically it's not an incidental learning condition. So this is a super important ethical consideration uh, when uh, you know we are designing studies like these. Usually what, what, what I've done in the past is, of course, explaining the ethics uh, application form uh, why it's not possible to, um, to do this, uh, to, to really reveal the specific aim at the beginning because of the nature of the research. Usually we would tell participants that uh, we would give them a more sort of general aim, like this is about language learning or this is about reading comprehension. Um, uh, and that's what we would tell them in the information uh, sheet. But then, of course, as soon as they finish, there is full disclosure of what they what the specific aim of the study was. I mean, sometimes they've already realized because they've done a few vocabulary tests. And, and then at the end, I think, you know, they might say, oh, I, th I thought the study, you know, really had a focus on vocabulary. Some of them might say that, but it's important that we explain that uh, to them at the end. But it's super crucial uh, in order to do research in this area to actually not disclose the specific aim at the beginning, because otherwise well, you're just basically researching a different topic. Uh, so that's another very important uh, distinction. And the, la uh, the last consideration, sorry, and the last point, uh, I, I'm, I'm sure you were thinking about that when I mentioned uh, this earlier, very often in this research, and, and this is not just for eye tracking, but it's for any vocabulary related vocabulary learning uh, research. It's a very common methodological decision is the use of pseudo words. So words that actually do not exist in the language. They are invented words that look like real words. And this is very common in L1 and L2 vocabulary research, mainly because it has the advantage that um, you know, it's a good way of controlling for previous knowledge. If you use real words, then you really need to make sure that you control for any sort of previous knowledge that participants had before the study. Uh, so that's a very common decision, but of course there is an important ethical consideration here. Uh, and I think it's particularly the case when we are doing classroom-based studies. So you're asking them to spend one hour of their time doing something to learn words that don't actually exist in the language. 
So I think that's a very important ethical consideration. Um, and yeah, different researchers have different opinions about these. My um, uh, my take on these or, or, you know, what I've decided to do is really, you know, I don't do that when we are really uh, um, doing studies in classroom um, context. So when we are actually using their language learning time, uh, so we try, you know, we would use real words and account for previous knowledge in, in, in other ways. So I tend to use pseudo words only when these are really lab-based studies. They're optional. They come, uh, you know, at their own, uh, uh, you know, outside their normal language learning time. It's an extra activity. And I really try to emphasize what are the benefits. So you, you know, you won't be able to use those words that you've just learned, but, uh, you know, you've been exposed to these and this other thing. And, you know, in the text, you're also learning about all this. So I think it's important that we also think about what are the benefits there needs to be still a benefit uh, um, uh, from from the experiment, and I think on the study, I think that's that's really really important. So these are some, of course, not all, but some of the ethical considerations of this type of um, of research, and and yeah, and I think there should be uh, time for questions and time for comments now. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Um, I'm giving you a round of applause all so by much. myself, but that's, that's okay. <laughs> um, thank you very much, Anna. It's great. It was really exciting. And like I said, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm quite, quite pleased to be the host of this because it basically get, means that I get to ask the first kind of questions. Um, and, and there were a number of things that you've mentioned um, where, where I thought, oh, this would, this is interesting. We need to talk about, and this is interesting. We need to talk about. So um, I'll see whether I can, how many, how many of my questions I can actually get through. Um, just a quick reminder, anyone who's here, please feel free to pitch in with any questions or comments you may have. Um, just make yourself known um, by either switching the video on, unmuting yourself, raising your virtual hand or by putting a, a note to me in the chat box. Um, so one of the things that I'm going to ask straight away, um, I mean, first of all, you did say about, you know, the, the sort of the random nonsensical words that people yeah. learn. Um, I mean, would it be possible nowadays to say that actually we can still do that in the classroom, in your personal view, not, not mm -hmm. in the generic view, but in your personal view? Um, given that in the UK um, there is now this push in the in the early years where the children have to learn to read nonsensical words, so I mean it's the nonsensical words. I totally agree with you. It's it's quite uh, quite a demand to say to a child, well, you you know you're now learning ten words and actually they don't mean anything, mm -hmm. but because that's part of the everyday experience now. Yeah. Does that make it more acceptable in a way? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, these, these nonsensical words are also very much uh, used in tests where um, an activity is to train pronunciation and, and uh, you know, phonics and things like that. So it's actually something that they will be, um, you know, will be seeing. Also, by doing that, yes, you won't be able to use those words ever, but actually you are improving your your ability to, you know, connect uh, uh, phoneme and graphemes. Uh, uh, and that, in theory, that is supporting reading development and yeah. language learning development. So yes, I, I totally agree. I think that's one way of, of saying, well, you know, this is not vocabulary that you're going to use, but it could... 
um, it could really be uh, uh, something that that supports your learning uh, in general. Yes, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I just found it interesting, um, you know, in terms of the obviously the um, the, the ethics um, and, and I'm going to ask you, you know, how easy or how difficult is it um, to actually get this kind of work approved, irrespective now of whether you're using the nonsensical words in a classroom environment. But if you're not actually telling your participants beforehand what exactly it is that you're looking for, I can imagine that ethics approval boards yep. may not be terribly <laughs> excited about it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. That's why I said it's one of the first things you have to be really, really clear about what is it that you're telling them and why citing research uh, uh, saying, well, you absolutely can't do that because then basically you're not doing research in this area uh, and you really need to um, to to. To, to be very, very specific about what is it that you're going to tell them, uh, you know, uh, how they might feel about it when, when they find out uh, uh, in the end. So, yeah, this is a section in the ethics application form that I tend to explain very clearly and, and you know, try to provide enough details. It, it hasn't been a problem in the past. As long as you explain very clearly why and what it what goes in the information sheet and what you're going to tell them in the end and all that, it hasn't been too problematic, but certainly something to to address in a lot of detail. I think I mean I'm, I you know obviously um, in my role at 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 our institute um, in terms of you know looking after the ethics um, for for staff members, um, you know I I can definitely say that we are generally taking the 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 view that it's not our job to stop research at all. Yeah. Our job is not to stop any kind of research from happening. Our job is just to make sure that the ethics have been thought through and that, you know, that that mm. that there is a consideration, <coughs> like you say, of the child and, and of, of people's health and of, of, of people not coming to any harm, whether that harm is physical or, you know, through through up, being upset or whatever. But generally, I would say <laughs> that after rigorous review, um, I don't think any research has ever been like completely stopped as such. I think it's more a case of, you know, really, this is something that you're going to have to rethink. Is there a way yeah. that you can you can do that? So I can see when you're saying that, you know, once you've explained it and justified it, that that would definitely be the case at yeah. our workplace where, yeah. you know, the, the, the environment is definitely, you know, this is important. Um, we need to find out about it. So therefore, we'll support it. Yeah. But, you know, you have to give us the the, the detailed information Absolutely. first. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That that has. I think. I mean, as I said, provided that I've you know given all the information, I've never had any any issues with uh, you know approval. But it is an important concern, uh, and that needs to be explained. So some of the other questions that I've got is, um, it, it, again, in terms of ethics, I've got one more question about ethics, and then I'm going to ask you a different one about the actual language learning. But um, about the ethics, um, when you're talking about, you know, creating materials that are suitable and appropriate for the eye tracking, because obviously yep. the text has to be a particular yep. size, yep. the lines have to be in a particular width and yep. depth and all of that. What? How difficult is it to to create these materials without having a participant there, um, or or do you uh, you know sort of create them together with a, a trial person if you like? Yeah. And, and how do you get that through ethical approval? 
Yeah, um, that's useful. That's a good point. I mean, usually, of course, we we design these materials. It depends on the on the aim of the study, but of course, trying to to mimic the kind of activities that they would do, uh, or the kind of in this case, the kind of texts that they would be exposed to. Very very often, we start from an existing, uh, you know, uh, textbook uh, uh, mm-hmm. material, and then we modify it to make sure that it fits the um, you know the the, the required requirements of the uh, of the uh, of the experiment uh, always piloting it with either students also with teachers uh, so the piloting of the materials is key and in my experience it's never been um, an issue with uh, with ethical applications uh, sorry with ethics applications yeah. it's always been yeah um, you know the materials have always been very similar, if not the same, but similar uh, to the kind of materials learners would yeah, normally use in a normal way. context. So, so it's never been an issue uh, in my experience. I've never, you know, actually presented them with very tricky materials or anything. But um, uh, yeah. yeah, so it's never been an issue actually. That's interesting. That's interesting because um, well, in my own research, I mean, I guess it's different because I'm not using text. I'm using images and things and sometimes uh-huh. when you use images you know there's there's all sorts of you know reasons as to why you're not supposed to be using images and what what do you do and you know yeah yeah, <laughs> so, yeah it's probably in in that respect it's probably a different kind of it's more to do with with it not being a text probably i mean we do have to be uh clear about whether there are any sensitive topics that have been you know that are mentioned yes. Uh, of course, you know, for sure, and say that, you know, none of the topics are sensitive that or that yeah. culturally appropriate. That's another thing yes. <laughs> with with tests as well. Very often we have to make modifications depending on the country. We we run a particular study because we need to ensure that everything is culturally appropriate. So uh, so, yeah, that's 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 certainly something that goes in the ethics uh, application form. <laughs> I'm just laughing about that because literally yesterday I recommended somebody some reading from the 1950s and it's actually really inappropriate language wise, you know, a, a piece of work that's been written in the 50s. It's kind of, you know, nowadays in modern day language, it just really, it would really never, awfully. yeah, it would never get through now. <laughs> yeah. So the other question I've got is, I mean, this is more to do with the actual research that you you, you were talking about. Um, you were obviously exploring the, the, the vocabulary learning in sec- second language learners. Um, now, I'm wondering, I mean, you said early on that there are about 10 to 15 percent of the saccades that are regressions. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and, and I totally get, you know, how that works and all of that. But I'm kind of wondering, are the the regressions how can you know that the regressions happen because that child is second language learner and not perhaps, for example, a dyslexic, because a dyslexic child will also have more regressions. So if somebody is perhaps not necessarily diagnosed with that dyslexia, um, you know, they may have extra amount of regressions. How how, how do you know? Yeah. I mean, I'm not trying to throw open your case here, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely interested in how do you know that that is a, um, a language learning issue and not a dyslexia issue? Yeah, that's a very good point. And there's some research on that. How do we, well, usually what we try to do is in, in background questionnaires, trying to get information about any, any sort of, uh, you know, conditions that might affect your reading now. Um, sometimes, as you say, 
participants wouldn't know themselves. So there is no way we could know if a regression is actually, uh, you know, because of, you know, a result or even, uh, you know, dyslexic readers might have uh, longer reading times or might fixate more on certain parts of the text. Uh, there is no way of knowing just by looking at the eye movement data, really. Uh, I mean, the way to, um, I mean, yes, ideally, you would want to uh, explore these population separately. And this is what, yes. they are, what this is why there are studies on dyslexic readers. Um, but um, usually in these type of studies where we have enough quantitative studies where we have a large enough group and we're talking about group patterns if we have one or two participants who didn't know they actually were dyslexic and they would still uh, um you know I don't think that would affect the general yes. patterns that much. Of course, if you have half of the participants being uh, undiagnosed, uh, uh, you know, dyslexic, that would affect uh, the patterns. But we hope that's not that's not really the case. If it's just one or two, uh, you know, just a few participants who don't know about it, um, you know, then uh, yeah. I don't think that would affect uh, um, results that much. And this is why it's so important to have an enough sample size. Yeah so that the, there is enough power in the analysis and the results. Um, I also tend to ask them um, at the end of the experiment how they felt about reading it, whether they found any sort of difficulties, because uh, you never know, For not only for, for, for uh, dyslexia, but for other reasons. I mean, sometimes yes. people say, oh, I really struggled to, to, you know, to read this text, or I didn't really understand that that might for me that might be a reason for deleting uh, you know data from that particular participant so you know some sort of after um uh, reading you know exit uh, questionnaire or questions are are important i think as well as a way of screening that that's really interesting i mean I, i'm 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 just particularly interested in that because um i have got a child a son who is dyslexic and bilingual so we've got oh. and obviously in school he used to have french lessons as well so we 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 have gone through all of those difficulties yeah. of of a multilingual brain that <laughs> at the same time doesn't read very well so it's 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 something that's you know genuinely of interest um, yeah. And yeah, we've we've had a lot of a lot of sort of issues and and tears around that when it was yeah, about kind of, learning to read is quite quite yeah. stressful for 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 parents and children. Yeah, yeah, and it's um, yeah, it's not yeah, not always understood properly, really. And the thing is also what was interesting with him was um, that at the time, you know, there were certain things that came through where it was very clear that, you know, his his understanding of language and of cultural connotations was impeding some of his his basic reading skills. And that's that's really interesting. You know, so sometimes there was the, the bilingualism that actually affected the, the everyday learning. Um, he, he struggled to read the time in, in English because he read it in German perfectly. Um, and and that's that's the kind of thing that we were really really struggling with at a time. You know, the, the, it just went. I don't know. There was no logic behind it. You know, this is the problem. There was, and nobody could give you any guidance because that was something that was new to everybody who was sitting there with in as as a stakeholder in that relationship. And it's so individual as well. I mean, multilingual kids would not necessarily all do the same. So it's yes. really really uh, tricky. And we all know 
that in the end, it obviously pays off and the advantages overcome any sort of initial disadvantages and they catch up and all that. But of course, going through that process where you see your kids yes. struggling, it's it's difficult. And this is why a lot of people move 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 to, you know, a monolingual environment and they say, okay, yeah, let's forget about, you know, trying to 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 maintain these different languages or or, you know, which of course we shouldn't do. We should we should all aim for 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 that, but it's more challenging. Absolutely. Well thank you very much Anna. This was absolutely exciting. I have got one question here from the floor. So please do you want to come in or do you want to raise the question in the chat box? Um, hi, Anna. Do you hear me? Hi. Yes, yes, yes we can yes, hear you. Can yes. Hear you. Uh, first of all, I'd like to say hi to Anna because uh, I was a previous MA TESO in service student. Oh, from... excellent. I registered your uh, SOA course. It's oh, very fantastic. Nice to uh, this webinar. And I do have this question since you mentioned about a uh, study about pre uh, teach vocabulary. Now I'm a uh, secondary English teacher in China and, um, you know, with very limited experience, but I feel like, um, you know, <laughs> regarding pre-teach vocabulary, I feel like um, it is more beneficial to students who have a relatively higher level of proficiency. Um, I mean, for higher level proficiency of students, it's better for them to learn students in context so normally we won't choose uh, to pre-teach pre vocabulary. Yeah. Um, whereas lower uh, level proficiency students, uh, we tend to pre-teach them. So mm -hmm. hopefully can lower their um, cognitive um, uh, demands. Yeah, absolutely. I haven't read any papers about empirical studies about that to improve the, the, the decision-making. Um, so do you have any comments about this? Thank yeah, you. that's a very good point. Of course, this all depends on 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 the participants and and their level of proficiency. So there are. Um, so you're right. This pre-teaching of vocabulary, pre-reading instruction of vocabulary, is often used the majority of times to support learners who might have difficulties, right, reading that text with those particular words. So you, we predict those difficulties and say, okay, let's prepare these people better. Let's teach uh, this potentially challenging vocabulary. And then we, um, you know, we, um, uh, we let them read the text. So that's one, and that's the kind of situation you were referring to, but it really depends on the context. So if we think of the academic context, for example, even very, uh, you know, high level uh, users uh, and learners of, of, of a language can be often be exposed. This is something that we do um, um, and we see a lot in, in you know, in um, a specialized uh, vocabulary, for example, if you're learning, you know, you're starting university, might be a very advanced uh, user of, uh, of, of, the, of the language, uh, but you might be completely new to this type of vocabulary. So actually it's not uncommon in academic contexts to actually see, you know, typical glossary of terms, uh, you know, at the beginning of the year Unit before actually reading about the, the topic. So in, in, in this context, actually, we might see examples of 
pre-instruction you know, of vocabulary or intentional learning of vocabulary before uh, reading even with more advanced learners. So I think it really depends on the, on the topic and we might use it for different purposes depending on the, sorry, on the participants. Does that um, make sense? Thank yeah, you yeah. very much. Thank you very much, Anna. That was really, really um, a very, very um, helpful sort of explanation. Um, I am just very quickly sharing um, some of the information um, on the Practice as Research Network in case anybody would Perfect. like to subscribe <laughs> to the newsletter um, or, you know, find out a little bit more. Um, also, I would like to highlight that the next seminar is going to take place on the 2nd of November, um, where Dr. Elena Dragu is going to be talking about ethics research practice, two is a company, three is a crowd. So she's going to be exploring, um, you know, that kind of that, that cusp that we have when we're doing all of those things together, ethics research and practice. Um, so can I just say, Anna, thank you very, very much for today. It was thank you. super exciting. It was <laughs> absolutely interesting. I can I cannot, you know, I'm I'm genuinely pleased that you've been here <laughs> and that we've had an opportunity to talk about your work. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I look forward to to hearing more in, in the future thank you again. So much.